Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, and this week we're bringing you a special show from Washington, D.C., I'm looking down towards the White House. All around me is the sound of institutional Washington heading home after another turbulent political week. We're one year on from the election that rocked the beltway and put a billionaire reality TV star in America's top job. And there's the big board, the 20 electoral votes from the state of Pennsylvania. We just got new metrics in. Donald J. Trump is the president of the United States elect. Thank you very much, everybody. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard-fought campaign. I mean, she, she fought very hard. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, <laughs> I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. Donald Trump took his brash style on the stump to the White House. He also brought a chaotic form of leadership too. Scandals over dealings with Russia have dogged him from the earliest days. His approval ratings are hovering at around 37%, and that makes him one of the most unpopular presidents in American history. And yet there's no denying Mr. Trump has made an extraordinary mark on politics. bad news is right now, Donald Trump remains the president, and particularly the bad news from my point of view is the failure of the Republican Party so far to stand up to him. Frankly, you know, it takes two to, to, to dance, and the Russians have chosen a path of confrontation. There isn't going to be a breakthrough positive stuff. And so whether the president is ever found to have been in collusion with Russia or not, this is going to derail his uh, vision of what his administration was going to be about. We'll be 
be hearing from our own experts at The Economist and from around Washington in just a moment. But first, every election marks the anniversary of many before it. And at a recent event at Georgetown University, it celebrated an election victory of a famous alumnus, William Jefferson Clinton. I've taken a bit of a trip down the time tunnel on my visit here to Georgetown University in Washington because 1992, that first Bill Clinton campaign for election to the presidency, was the first one that I covered as a writer. It was the beginning of the eight-year Clinton era with all that promise of a radical centre for America at home and in its relations globally. Fast forward 25 years and a very different kind of politics rules the roost here in America. So what will Bill Clinton say about his vision for the Democrats from now on, not least in the wake of that 2016 defeat by Hillary Clinton by one Donald Trump? When I was a freshman at Georgetown, we all had to take a course called The Evolution of Civilizations, in which the famous professor, Carol Quigley, said that the defining idea of Western civilization, that it enabled us to outperform other civilizations since the age of reason, at least, was that the future could be better than the past, and that every person had a personal, moral responsibility to make it so. That's a pretty heavy dose to lay on an 18-year-old. <laughs> but all these long years later, I remember it well, and I'm grateful that I heard it. America depends on adhering to our version of that conviction. And yet there are many millions of our fellow citizens who don't believe it anymore, who don't believe much of anything anymore. A warm response there for the former President Bill Clinton here at his old university in Georgetown. He sounds frail and a bit hoarse over that long speech these days, but he still has that folksy, off-the-cuff speaking style that reminds us of his time in the White House. He contrasted the America he'd run, but also that of George Bush I with Donald Trump's administration, craftily invoking bipartisanship there against the president today. What advice did he have for the future progressives in the audience? Lots of future policymakers and budding politicians, of course, turning up to hear him and, and still excitedly uh, trying to chat to him behind me. He said you had to be pragmatic. People needed to be better off when you left office than when you arrived. But he also recognised a powerlessness among voters, a sense of disenfranchisement that he thought had driven people towards a more raucous and more populist politics. So what was his remedy for that? Work at the grassroots, he told his audience. Get people to show up the golden rule of his political success, he claimed. Get to know what might motivate and move people in your direction and listen to them. He bemoaned a less fact-based politics, a more reactive, gut, emotional way of 
discoursing about the country's future under Donald Trump. There would come a day, he said, when facts and knowledge would return to the fore of American politics. But did he know how to get from now to then? That wasn't so clear. Prominent Democrats aren't the only ones pondering the way forward. Prominent Republicans are too, just in more hushed tones. People don't know who's going to run and who would be the strongest candidate. And I could give you a bunch of names, but I myself am not sure. Do I, want I spoke to Bill Crystal, perhaps Washington's best-known never-Trump Republican. Bill is editor-at-large for the Weekly Standard, a conservative news magazine, and a man about Washington. In 2016, he launched a bid for a third candidate, the politically inexperienced Evan McMullen, to run for the presidency against Mr Trump. Well, Mr McMullen caused a stir, but he didn't dent Mr Trump's chances. So who in 2020 could launch a bid to take on the president? Just looking at it sort of analytically, if you will, uh, John Kasich ran against Trump in 2016, has not let up in his criticism of Trump, wants to run, I think, in 2020. The governor of Ohio, uh, he was ended up as the second or third place finisher in 2016. He'd be an obvious candidate. The deficiency is, you know, someone who Trump beat last time, is he the best uh, uh, standard carrier for next time? Mitt Romney, again, is sort of a, looking backwards, you might say, but a very impressive man who was very strong against Trump and certainly has the stature to stand against him. Uh, people like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, senators who are retiring, who've spoken up against Trump. So I, I, there are plenty of people. I think it's always hard three years out just the way the American system works. You know, you don't have one leader of the opposition, especially within the party. It's such an unusual circumstance. I guess that's, that's what I would emphasize. I mean, I'm not – believe me, I'm the last person to defend all the rationalizers of and accommodators to Trump. I've been very critical of them, in fact, and uh, as has the Weekly Standard, the magazine that I, that I started. So I, I'm – pleased. I'm proud that we've stood up. But I also would say that it's just so unusual in this system. And there isn't quite one person. I mean, there isn't quite, you know, John McCain is ill. I mean, there just isn't, it's not obvious that everyone should rally around one person. Having said that, that's fine, because no one needs to do it. There's no, if we all rallied around Mitt Romney tomorrow, it wouldn't change anything. What, what is the problem is what you indicated, which is the senators, the combination of being cowed by the fact that Trump is still pretty popular with the Republican primary electorate, and they're sort of talking themselves into the fact that he's not so bad, and rationalizing the fact that, well, maybe we can get some policy victories. Uh, all of that together has created a, a, a very bad slippery slope where they, they rationalize one thing, and then they, they, they privately say, oh, that, that was bad, but I guess we just have to go along. And then two weeks later, they've sort of forgotten that they privately thought it was bad. And then they're just going along. You know, that's how rational. The thing I've learned the most over the last year is the power of rationalization. You know, that really is a strong – people who are intelligent and otherwise decent people can talk themselves into tolerating and even semi-endorsing some pretty bad things. What odds would you give me on Donald Trump getting a second term? I think the odds are against it just because he's at 39% approval and I don't think he's likely to be a very successful president. Incidentally, he's at 39% approval with the economy having been strong for the last year and without any obvious foreign policy fiascos yet. And obviously, I hope there aren't any, but I'm not confident there won't be. So I think the odds are against him. But the Democrats are in disarray. The Republican challengers uh, aren't are, – the Republicans are in disarray. Uh, he's, he, he's an effective demagogue. I, I think that's the one thing people underestimated about Trump. Um, and so I'm not confident that he won't get a second term, but I, I would bet against him getting a second term. And then the question is, do, does it simply swing over to the Democrats, which is quite possible? Or is there a possible 
Republican alternative who could either win a primary or conceivably could you get a breakup of the two-party system and a third party? I think that's more possible than it has been for a long time, but it's still an uphill, you know, still I wouldn't bet on that in the American system. Do you need to make an attempt to understand Democrats better and vice versa with the hope of making perhaps an alliance across the very broad center of American politics? Yes, I mean, I think so. It's, I was been involved in a little project called the New Center Project with Bill Galston, who worked for Bill Clinton in the Bill Clinton White House precisely for that reason. I think, A, there's a lot of genuine rethinking of issues going on because it's a new moment and, and there are a lot of economic and other issues, globalization technology, which requires some fresh thinking, which will break some of the old ideological uh, structures and silos, I think. Um, and secondly, um, as a practical matter, there aren't that many of us never Trump Republicans. We could we can simply enjoy being in the wilderness and I suppose feel that we're in the right place. But it's very important for us to, A, persuade the reluctant Trump supporters among Republicans, of whom there are many. I mean, one shouldn't kid oneself that there's there are some real Trump enthusiasts. They're presumably hopeless. But there are lots of people who have talked themselves into Trump, rationalizing Trump. They could be, I think, perhaps moved away as, as events unfold, and that needs to be one effort. And then there's the real effort to, to try to work with responsible Democrats in certain policy areas, and maybe ultimately even politically, to try to restore a vital center in American politics. It's very hard to know how that plays out. And we do have such a strong tendency in this country towards a two-party system that it's hard to figure out, practically speaking, how to do some of that. But I think a lot of that is going on informally. And people are, look, it's a very unusual situation. So people are understandably, I am a little uh, puzzled, really, and not certain about how to proceed. But I think the only thing to do is to my core, my core uh, operating you know, uh, principle is we need to minimize the damage Trump does and we need to try to make sure Trump is only president for four years, if, if that, and, uh, and get a better president to succeed him. So how to do that, how to get from here to there is not so easy. It requires a certain amount of tactical flexibility. Uh, but I think the good news is a lot of people are talking to a lot of people about how to do that. The bad news is right now, Donald Trump remains the president, and particularly the bad news from my point of view is the failure of the Republican Party so far to stand up to him. Bill Crystal there. Now on to someone who knows Donald Trump well. I guess I've been surprised only by the lack of surprise in the way he operates as president. He's remarkably consistent. Mark Fisher and his colleagues at The Washington Post spent two dozen hours with Donald Trump for a biography published before the 2016 election. When I visited Mark last year, Mr. Trump was the presumptive loser in the race. That seems like a distant memory now, but there are constants, as Mark points out. He's remarkably consistent and he is true to the man he's been since he was in his 20s. He continues to be someone who loves to be the provocateur, who loves to have people think of him as unpredictable, when in fact he operates in the White House basically the way he did in his family business. I'm going to challenge you and say the presidency must have had some effect on him. Oh, no question. It is, uh, it's been a deeply unsettling and probably fairly depressing experience for Donald Trump because he's been torn out of his comfort zone. He's been taken away from the home, the only home he ever knew, New York City. He's been taken away from his career setting of a family business with a very tight circle of executives who'd been with him for many, many years. And he's been thrown into a system that he didn't understand and didn't bother to study. A system that is deeply complex, a system that is resistant to change, and a system that he has found 
doesn't really respond to the kind of edicts uh, that he likes to issue. Do you think he enjoys it? I think he loves the trappings of power. He loves the pomp. He loves the ability to uh, watch over military parades and to uh, sit in rooms with uniformed men. And I think he continues to get the most joy out of the rallies, the chance to uh, have adoring crowds cheer at his every wild remark. Uh, The part that he can't stand is the actual business of being president, the actual business of dealing with foreign leaders and with uh, reluctant and recalcitrant members of Congress and with, uh, God forbid, the, the opposition. And so he's... I think a deeply frustrated, sometimes angry man uh, who resents the fact that he's been uh, wrestled away from his habits uh, and who fights uh, every day to find ways uh, that he can go back to doing the kinds of things he did and that he can go back to having a circle of people who he knows and trusts. Well, let's look at the way that Americans see their president's performance after a year. The Washington Post ran a poll with ABC News And the conclusion was that the number of Americans who thought that Donald Trump had accomplished not much or very little was at 65 percent. And that was up from the spring. So that might be seen as as a, a bad judgment on his record. But did they really expect him to accomplish very much? Is that the point of a Trump presidency? First of all, those who admit that he hasn't accomplished much that doesn't necessarily indicate that they blame him, and it doesn't necessarily indicate that they are unhappy. It, it actually just says, for people who dislike Donald Trump, it says, hey, he's a terrible person and he hasn't gotten anything done. And for people who liked him or at least voted for him, it's their way of saying, hey, the Democrats and the press and the courts and public opinion uh, have all ganged up against him and are uh, prohibiting him from doing what's right. So what we're seeing is that uh, there's a lot of frustration around the country about the fact that things aren't uh, getting done uh, and that he's been unable to drain the swamp and fulfill all those other promises. But a lot of his base, a lot of those who wanted him to disrupt Washington are very pleased that he continues to say what he's always said about blowing the thing up. What about his popularity ratings? Is that they're not particularly good, although there are historic comparisons of other first term presidencies that have got off to poor starts, of course. But then neither is the Democrats' recovery chart looking good. I mean, if you were to look at it, even Stevens, do you think that they're both in a mess? First of all, there is a level of disappointment uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, Those who thought he was going to go into office and uh, blow up the system have been disappointed at the slow pace and the inability to get some very basic things done. Uh, That said, much of the base is sticking with him because they don't have anywhere better to go. And the reason they don't have anywhere better to go is that the Democrats are clueless. The Democrats have presented neither a message nor messengers. They have not uh, come to any agreement even among themselves about what alternative vision they would like to propose. And they've fallen into a kind of civil strife in which uh, they, they are destroying some of their very own very good chances of winning elections uh, by battling with one another over how ideologically pure their candidates need to be. 
I wonder if you're being a bit too gloomy on the Democrat side of, of the balance sheet because there are lots of indicators that Democrats might take back the House next year. That would be, they would have chips back on the board. And one thing we know about politics in the era of, of Trump or otherwise is that a bit of success doesn't half ginger up a party. You might find them beginning to come through with candidates who could take on Trump. Realistic? It's realistic, but we don't see it happening yet. Uh, we're at a point now where uh, the Democrats, uh, in part because they spent the last uh, decade or so enraptured with a, at least initially popular president, and they didn't really bother to build up the party in the lower ranks. So the grassroots had gone dry, and uh, there's been no real effort to remedy that. Uh, first of all, second. Uh, this is a party that doesn't have a uniting vision. It has instead uh, a coalition of disparate groups that are united only by identity politics. And they do not have a philosophy uh, or a message that says, here's how we bring everybody together. Republicans, uh, for all of their faults, have that. And uh, as long as that remains the case, the Democrats really, uh, I think it's clear already that they cannot succeed simply as the anti-Trump party. Mark and I also touched on an unavoidable controversy, Russia's involvement in the American election and the looming question of whether or not President Trump or members of his team colluded in that. Will it go down in history as inconsequential or is it the worm in the bud for Trump? Well, if you look at it from the perspective of Donald Trump, uh, it's a deeply serious matter because he is uh, bothered, angered, uh, frustrated by this every day. From what we hear inside the White House, he is at times almost dysfunctional uh, because of his concern and his frustration over this investigation. So from that perspective alone, this is having an enormous impact. Now, some, some investigations go on for years and kind of uh, fizzle out and uh, a few people go to jail and, and that's the end of it. It's conceivable that that will happen here, but uh, the far more important effect is that for the next year, two years, perhaps longer, we will see a government that is in daily crisis because of an investigation that keeps nipping at their heels. And so whether the president is ever found to have been in collusion with Russia or not, this is going to derail his a vision of what his administration was going to be about. It's already making it very difficult for him to communicate openly with his own advisors, all of whom are lawyered up. Uh, the atmosphere within the administration is icy because of this investigation. So an investigation doesn't have to result in the indictment of a president or the impeachment of a president for it to have a paralyzing effect on a presidency. Tell me, from your knowledge of the way Donald Trump operated as he was preparing his campaign and in his, his business activities, what do you think his real view of Russia is? And does he realise that he's been at the very least negligent or would that not figure? By all evidence that we have, Donald Trump's view of Russia is that it was a... Uh, fairly successful place to run the Miss Universe pageant uh, and it was a very frustrating place to try to get a hotel built and he's worked for many years decades even to get a hotel built in Russia and it just never happened and uh, he met some good people along the way and he kept thinking he could get a deal done and he still thinks he can get a deal done and that's about the extent of his thinking 
uh, it turns out that there's You're also... You're not just being dismissive there. You're not just having a liberal elite moment, are you? No, not at all. This is, this is how he has spent decades of his career thinking about Russia on those grounds. Uh, and so now uh, it dawns upon him, or it's, it's impressed upon him, uh, that there are other aspects to Russia beyond beauty pageant and hotels, and he's having to cope with that. Uh, he likes to think that, uh, that because of his business connections to Russia, he has uh, insight and an ability to make a connection there uh, that could be useful and could turn a rivalry into a friendship. Um, he also knows that Russia is causing him a lot of problems and this whole investigation is going on. Uh, so I think one of the reasons he's been as quiet about Russia as he has is not just because the White House is crawling with lawyers trying to restrict what he says about it, but it's also because uh, there's a disconnect between his previous impressions of Russia and what he's now being told by the military and intelligence people around him. Uh, and I don't think he's processed that, and I'm not exactly sure he's interested in processing that. Also in town by chance was The Economist's Russia and Eastern Europe editor, Arkady Ostrovsky. He was sussing out some of the background to that very deep Russia story and talking to insiders in the administration. So Arkady and I visited adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Heidi Redeker, to discuss the fallout from the scandal both in America and in Russia. Well, I think the biggest impact of all is that Russia has now become part of America's domestic politics. It's on the minds of a lot of Americans. The Russians have been doing this stuff, disinformation, fake news in Russia's own periphery. The idea that Russia could do it in the United States, the United States will be under attack, I think is a completely new idea. And I think that the law enforcement agencies, the Senate, the Congress, the U.S. institutions are taking this very seriously, not because, and this is very important, not because this is what got President Trump elected, but because a foreign power did something illegal on the U.S. soil. And I think that is a very serious case, and I think that everybody in America takes it very seriously. Is that true, Heidi, that everybody in America takes it seriously? We heard the White House spokeswoman saying most Americans don't care about this stuff. Typical Trump style, batted it away. What's your take on where the country is on this? So there are obviously many challenges that the U.S. is tackling right now. And the idea that Russia actually attacked democratic institutions is something that I think really across the board people care about and want to make sure doesn't happen again. You sure that's not just a Washington insider's viewpoint? I think if you gave an ordinary American the list of things they're concerned about, you'd have other things that were on top of that list, jobs and immigration and education and all sorts of things. But fundamentally, I don't think we've seen this before. And many people are getting their arms around the fact that this is actually an attack on our basic systems that we took for granted. And also, well, actually, if you look at the polls, uh, the recent YouGov poll showed that the number of Americans who now see this not just as some political partisan issue, but as a genuine threat has gone up from something like 27% to 44%, uh, which is a very significant jump in a year. Arkady, does that mean it didn't work from the point of view of the Kremlin? If it is now getting pushback in America, there's chaos here in the political institutions and close to the president, you could say that plays to Mr. Putin's hand. Well, I don't think it does actually place Putin's hand. Uh, also, we have to be careful when we say it's a sort of Kremlin attack. 
the difficulty for the U.S. Uh, law enforcement agencies and investigations is that they're not just dealing with one organization called the FSB or the Kremlin. They're dealing with a network of freelancers, people who are just out on the limb, getting paid, clearly either through the Kremlin or with Kremlin turning a blind eye or even encouraging them to do that. But it's much more of a sort of a terrorist network, if you like, rather than just one state action. And it has to be taken, obviously, very seriously. And, you know, from, from Russia's point of view, and I think a lot of Rus- you know, members of the Russian elite feel that, that, that this has been completely reckless. And I think it has been a shock in the U.S. that the stuff that the Russians have been doing in eastern Ukraine, in Georgia, in Moldova, in its uh, backyard, they've now done on the U.S. soil. Heidi, part of your expertise is the U.S.-led sanctions against Russia. Help me out here, because it does seem very confusing how that is playing out and how, indeed, it would relate to the situation that Arkady has just described, in which a lot of the chaos doesn't seem to have come directly from main state actors. The history post-inauguration of President Trump of sanctions is really, I think, one of those untold stories of checks and balances working in the United States. Once Trump becomes president, there is a deep concern that he is going to unilaterally roll back sanctions that were imposed mm-hmm. on the back of the invasion and annexation of Crimea, on the invasion of the Donbas in Ukraine, and on the back of the cybersecurity. Uh, and it didn't happen. Why? Well, I think what you did see was the U.S. Congress stepping up, and they codified the executive orders that had imposed those sanctions, making it much more difficult for them to actually be taken off. In fact, in the new sanctions law, Congress now has an authority um, over any weakening or lifting of, of sanctions, and indeed more sanctions were put on for certain types of, of sectors in the economy um, and, uh, and for abuse of human rights and for cyber intrusion. So this is something where Congress has now an overwhelmingly voted in support of this. It was 98 to 2 in the Senate. So it's really a a checks and balances story where the sanctions are now in the hands of Congress. Let's come back to Donald Trump. He is the president. He's had an erratic approach to Russia. But do you now see a policy crystallizing around this new situation in which a lot of things have come to light that we didn't know about before? I think Donald Trump's room for, for doing any kind of a deal uh, with Vladimir Putin, if he imagined once that he could do that, is now very limited. Russia has become a totally toxic subject in the U.S. politics. Anybody who mentions Russia, the flags go up. So I think he has to be very, very careful. But that's on the political side. On, in terms of the institutions, and I agree with Heidi completely, I think we're actually seeing the American institutions kicking in and doing their job. Frankly, you know, it takes two to, to, to dance, and the Russians have chosen a path of confrontation. There isn't going to be a breakthrough positive stuff. The economists Arkady Ostrovsky and Heidi Redeker from the Council on Foreign Relations there. Finally, Democrats scored a major victory this week, but unless you follow Virginia state politics closely, you might not have noticed. 
And CNN projects that Ralph Northam, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, will be elected governor of Virginia, beating the Republican candidate Ed Gillespie. Uh, the Democrats continue to win. In John Fassman, our Ralph Washington North- correspondent, was at Ralph Northam's election night party. John, how big a win is this for the Democrats? Well, there are two ways to look at this. The first is that Lieutenant Governor, now Governor-elect Ralph Northam, was forecast to win. He held a steady lead in the polls, but he outperformed those polling expectations and really ran up the score in North Virginia. And so what this does for Democrats, both Northam's win and Phil Murphy's win in New Jersey, is number one, it avoids the backbiting and fights that would have occurred had they lost. And number two, it sort of provides a blueprint for Democrats as they head into the midterms next year. It sustains the argument that what Democrats need is a big tent party with progressives running in progressive districts and and moderates like Mr. Northam running in in more modern and purple states. And so I think Democrats are going to be very heartened by this. I think Republicans will be frightened given just how big Northam's victory was in the suburbs. Is it the revenge of the suburbs? That's a, a tag that's been put on it. Is that your experience reporting it? It is the revenge of the suburbs. I'm always leery of overdrawing lessons from single state victories. Virginia suburbs are very diverse. They're full of well-educated people. So this might not be replicable elsewhere, but certainly in purple states, this is a blueprint for victory. And I think Republicans in blue states have to be very nervous, too. And is this the boost that the Democrats were looking for before the midterms? Yes, it's, it's more than the boost Democrats were looking for before the midterms. Not only did Murphy and Northam win, but Democrats flipped at least 15 seats in the Virginia House of Delegates. That's a stunning performance. Um, they also did very well in mayoral races around the country. So I think it's, this is the sort of thing that, that will energize them heading into the midterms. Well, thanks to John Fassman, fresh back there from those election night celebrations in Virginia. Thank you, John. Thank you. Well, that's all from this special on Donald Trump a year on from the election. Do join us next week for another special on Trump and the cities. Together with my producer, Cheryl Brumley, I'm off to the airport now and we're headed to Chicago. There we'll be talking to the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, about what he's declared as a Trump-free zone in Chicago. Let's see. I'm Anne McElvoy from Washington. This is The Economist. <laughs>